0: that. Welcome, everybody, to BibleQuest.tv, the Tuesday edition, and we're glad you're able to join us today on this uh, Bible Quest talk show, and since it is a talk show, we invite you to uh, give us your comments and questions, um, either texting it in in the Q&A button if you're coming in through the Zoom app, or if you're watching us through the, what's the other one called? <laughs> YouTube channel. YouTube <laughs> channel. Yeah, I tell you, lately I'm having a hard time. Um, but either channel you're coming in on, use the chat. And if you're on the Zoom one, the Zoom app, we invite you to call in using your audio. We really want the first one. We have not had anyone do that yet, but we're trying to uh, get someone to call in on the audio using the app. You do that by you quick quick clicking on the hand icon, raising your hand, that tells us you'd like to ask us a question using your audio. And uh, we're hoping that the Tuesday talk show gets a caller first, because I know the Wednesday program is really trying to do it as well. So (laughs) let's see if we get that. Uh, Got a little uh, friendly competition, that's right. A little competition there with Jeff. Uh, Jeff, good to see you. How are you doing?
1: Hey, very, very good, Drew. Um, we're going to beat you. We're going to get the first caller on Wednesday.
0: You're going to get it tomorrow? Okay. Let's, and it can't be one of the pa- other panelists that does oh, uh, <laughs> oh! I know where you're going. <laughs> Steven, good to see you. How are you doing today?
2: Doing well, Drew. Welcome, everybody.
0: Good. And Scott? Scott? Doing fine. Good to see you. And Jonathan, our webcast engineer and fellow panelists, is with us as well. Hi, Jonathan. How are you doing? <coughs>
2: I'm doing really good. Good to see I you know guys.
0: We we got everything going. I hope right. We got the uh, recording going. We're going live here, and everything looks good to go. Okay, great. So, with that said, um, we have an excellent program again today. Scott, what is that excellent program? Where are we starting?
3: Well, we have a question on First Kings eleven. So let's have somebody read the question. And then let's have somebody read the text and let's set a little bit of background just of where the text uh, fits in 1 Corinthians, and then we'll start
2: uh, discussing it. So what's our question? Who's got that up? I don't have that question. I've got, I've got it here. Our question today comes from Reagan, who asks, in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 through 16, Paul talks about head coverings. I can't seem to draw any conclusions from what he says. Does he mean we should use them, or is it optional? I'm confused about the whole passage, especially verse 10. That's our question for today.
3: So let's begin with uh, the text. Uh, well, actually, let's just set the stage of 1 Corinthians just a little bit first, and then we'll read the text. So the church at Corinth was planted uh, by the Apostle Paul, uh, right around 50 AD, one that area. And uh, there was a lot going on in this church, and they've got a lot of problems and issues. And this is a few years later, and he's writing to them. And most of the letter can be lodged under reports that he has heard about them of bad behavior from, from like the household of uh, Chloe, and questions or challenges or arguments that they have presented in a letter that they wrote to him, so it ends up being uh, an assortment of problems to be explained or untangled or rebuked or straightened out. Uh, so it's the the structure is very unlike, say, something like Romans or Hebrews, uh, because about a number of different things. So part of the book deals with I have third, it is reported in a problem. What are the three places where he mentions it's reported, and then he gives a problem?
2: Well, uh, Chapter 5, verse 1, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans.
3: Yeah, and then back in chapter 1, around verse 10 and follow.
2: And then in 1 Corinthians
1: chapter 11 and verse 18, when he hears there are divisions among them.
3: Right. And then, we also have where he's responding to something they said. Chapter 7, verse 1, now concerning the things that you wrote about. And he answers there some things they'd said about celibacy, marriage, et cetera. Chapter 8, now concerning things sacrificed to idols. They're wanting to justify going to idol feasts, which they shouldn't be doing. Uh, chapter 12, now concerning spiritual gifts. They'd ask for more speaking in tongues. And then there's a couple of sections where we don't have it introduced either with the words now concerning or with the words it is reported. And this is one of those sections. And so we don't know for sure if they've written about it or that it's he's heard about or if there's another reason that he's addressing them. But here's what the text says. So if somebody would read,
2: please, verse two through 16. I will say just before we read this, it is notable that chapter 11 falls into a commendation and a not commendation. That there is kind of an introductory phrase that divides the chapter in half. Verse 2, he says, now I commend you because these things, in verse 17, he says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. And then goes on to talk about things about the Lord's Supper. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse... To. Now, I'll make a side note here that uh, I am reading from the English Standard Version, which takes a particular view on the text. Um, they translate the word woman as wife sometimes in the text, and other times they translate it as woman. Um, so I will read that, bearing in mind that it's the same Greek word for woman or wife. It can be either depending on the context. Um, so just understand that as I'm reading through. Now, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, or the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife or woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife, or woman, to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God.
3: All right, now before we go ahead, Stephen's already noted one translation issue. Most Bibles just say woman, which is what Gune means, and the ESV translates it wife. Uh, I think it would be better to translate it woman, because that's if you think the text... Context indicates it's a wife. Uh, The Greeks had one word for either one, and the the context should determine it, not uh, putting the word wife in there, I think. Secondly, um, on whether, and if I remember correctly, and Jeff, you can probably answer this, there's some language in the middle of this text that's a little bit ambiguous as to whether you way to translate it, because I believe I've, it's a question of, like, is it middle or is it active and such? And so while some translations have cover his head or cover her head, other translations say to be covered <clears throat> or be uncovered. Uh, and the Greek could potentially go either way. Uh, so when you're reading the S B there's a couple of things there that, that they've gone one way on it, but it doesn't necessarily go that way. All right. Uh, anybody have any comments about this text before we start going through and reviewing uh, some of the different explanations on this text?
0: And I also want to remind anyone in the audience to please give us your comments on, on uh, this topic as we're going through it as well.
3: Let's just mention, this is not the easiest text to figure out in the Bible in part because it's the only text that deals with some of these very specifics. On a lot of biblical subjects, you'll have something's discussed in this chapter over here, and in another book over there, and in another letter over here. This is the single text on the applications here, the, the gender roles of men and women, which this is about, are of course all over the place but uh, we're just in this chapter. But it is a biblical subject. Paul wrote about it, and so we want to pay attention to what it is. Anything further before we start looking? All right, so let's share this right here. And here are some of the ways that uh, people have interpreted uh, this text. And for some reason, I'm not getting it. There we go. All right. Uh, number one, uh, some people believe this is for a time when spiritual gifts existed. And I'll present the argument. And then what I'm going to ask you guys to do is to discuss uh, what in the text would support that or what in the context would support it and what would be a challenge to that interpretation. And so the, I'll, I'll present it first. The argument here is that because in the first century there were spiritual gifts and some women did have gifts of prophecy, uh, such as um, Philip's Philip's Daughters. daughters. Uh, Pardon?
2: I was just saying Philip's Daughters. Go ahead.
3: Okay, yeah. Uh, That uh, they would use their gifts in the church, A woman might stand up and prophesy or pray or something, but because she was doing a spiritual gift, they were to wear a veil to indicate I'm still in submission, even though I'm delivering this prophecy. So this is one interpretation. Another interpretation is that this was a custom of the time, that women at that time, it was indecent to go out without a veil. And maybe some of the women there were, Unveiling because of their liberties in Christ, and Paul saying, "No, you need to follow this custom." And another would be that no, this is this is an ordinance. It's in the New Testament. It's telling women you should have a veil on. And some people think if you go to worship, other people think no, if, if you're praying or prophesying. And since we still have prayer, it's when you pray. So if you pray at worship, or if you're praying at lunch, etc., or public, like the Mennonite view? Or is the covering the long hair? Uh, So let's start with number one. Uh, Here is the argument. This is related to spiritual gifts and so it doesn't apply today because since the spiritual gifts ceased, as it was said to be temporary in 1 Corinthians 13, this regulation of the spiritual gifts has also ceased. What would be in the text or context that would be presented as supportive in that area?
0: Verse
3: four. Okay. Read that, please.
0: Uh, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. So that it looks like the, the, there's a connection with prophecy. Now, I'm not saying I take that position. I'm just saying that's what might be supporting that.
3: All right. And which of those two words would be supportive? Because it said when he prays or prophesies.
2: Prophesies. Prophesies. Though some people, according to this view, um, would also take prayer to possibly be a spiritual gift because of chapter 14, verse 13, where it says, therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. And they might try to argue that uh, prayer can also be praying in a tongue. So that could be a spiritual gift.
3: So the supporting evidence is A, it mentions when you're prophesying and B, it mentions when you're praying, and although prayer is not a spiritual gift, we know from chapter 14 that you could have used a spiritual gift while praying. Is there anything else in the text or context to support this? view? The
0: next verse 5, does that have anything to do with it?
1: Well, only to the extent that it again mentions praying and prophesying, this time in connection with a woman.
3: Yeah, so saying that a, a man should not be covered when he prays a prophesying and a woman should be covered when she's praying or prophesying. And so the assumption is made that this is used to show that she's not usurping authority, even though she's now acting as a prophet. That's not stated in the text, but it's, it's, it's presumed. Anything else in the text or context that would be supporting evidence?
1: I don't, I don't see I don't
3: anything. anything else. I don't see. Yeah. Anything. Right. So, what would be some challenges to that interpretation?
1: Well, one is he says praying or prophesying, and you have to you have to make a jump to say that the praying here is specifically spiritual gift praying. There's nothing in the context itself that would tell you that. Uh, the fact that it's mentioned with prophesying doesn't mean it's spiritual gift praying. Uh, the fact that it's mentioned with prophesying has, seems more to more likely to be. You've got the two sides of communication with God: God speaking to the prophet, prophesying; the individual speaking to God, praying. Um, so that would be, I think, one
3: thing that would argue against. Okay, that. let's let's explore that. <clears throat> yeah, let's explore that. For whatever it's being talked about here, this the what it refers to is when he. Praise or prophesies, when she prays or prophesies. So it can be helpful to think about what's special about those two things. What immediately comes to mind that's common to prayer and prophecy?
1: Well, communication between man and God or between a person yeah. and
3: God. Yes, yes. In one, God is speaking through the person, and the other, God is the the person is speaking to God. That seems to be quite obvious that that's what they have in common. Is it especially obvious that they're both spiritual gifts? No. It's obvious
1: that prophesying involves a spiritual gift. It's not obvious that prayer necessarily does. Right.
3: And in chapter 12, where Paul enumerates the spiritual gifts, he lists nine separate spiritual gifts. Uh, Anybody want to just read that list to us real quick?
1: 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I'll start in verse uh, 8. For to one is given through the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge, according to the same Spirit, to another faith in the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings in the one Spirit, to another workings of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation
3: of tongues. But so there we have nine spiritual gifts. If you're Paul and you're writing this letter and you're wanting to make sure that people understand when you're using these nine spiritual gifts is it seem very strong evidence that you would pick one of these and then one that's not one of these?
1: No, it's not. Now I would I would say this. I don't and I don't think you're saying that 1 Corinthians 12 Verses seven through nine is an exhaustive list of everything that's a spiritual gift. However, um, if he's expecting us or his readers to know that he's talking specifically about spiritual gifts, you think he would mention two that were readily identifiable in this letter as spiritual gifts that he said were spiritual gifts, or you would at least expect that they're mentioned somewhere that prayer is mentioned. Uh, of course, somebody's going to say, well, it is mentioned in chapter 14, praying it's
3: with the spirit that you might pray. In the spirit, in other words, you were praying with a tongue. Mm-hmm. That's the spiritual gift is the tongue, and you might use it during prayer, right? So, in chapter thirteen, Paul mentions some of the gifts again without mentioning all nine. And what are the ones he mentions? Prophecy, yep, tongues, tongues and knowledge, <laughs> and knowledge. And then in chapter fourteen, over and over and over, he mentions two. What are they?
2: Tongues and prophecy.
3: Yes. So if chapter 11 had begun with this, when a woman speaks with tongues or prophesies, that would be a lot more clearly, Paul's talking about that context. Go ahead. Prayer. And so I think it is true what Jeff said, that the more obvious connection between those two words is not spiritual gifts. The more obvious connection is communication with God.
1: Can I make this observation too? Yes. We have a section uh, where he begins, as you've already indicated in chapter 12, now concerning spiritual gifts. And he talks yes. about it for three chapters. Yes. And in that chapter, not only does he talk about the spiritual gifts and how to use them and so forth, he also talks about such ancillary issues related to them as women speaking. Women have yes. spiritual gifts, but in the assembly, women should be silent. Even though they have exactly. spiritual gifts, they would be silent in the assembly. Now, here's the observation I want to make. If 1 Corinthians 11 is when women use spiritual gifts, they should be covered, uh, that would belong in this section concerning spiritual gifts. Exactly. exactly. But it's not there. Right. It, it's back here in chapter 11.
3: Yeah. If you had now concerning spiritual gifts, and it goes through and says everything else, and then says, oh, and by the way, women... You know, we're available when you're prophesying or speaking in tongues. Yeah, we have. Um, When you use
1: spiritual gifts uh, in the assembly, prophesy rather than speak in tongues. If you speak in the assembly with a tongue speaker, be sure there's an interpreter there. If you're a woman in the assembly, don't use your spiritual gifts uh, to speak because it's not proper to speak. That would have been where he would have said. And if you're a woman using spiritual gifts, be sure you're covered. But he doesn't.
3: yeah, 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 and it's not there. Uh, and then lastly, this is assuming that women were prophesying in the assembly. And I think from 1 Corinthians 14, it's clear that Paul is saying they weren't even to be asking questions during the assembly. Right. So, uh, and, and and we've also got over there in 1 Timothy 2 that they weren't to be teaching, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Right.
3: So I would say there's the supporting evidence would be that it does mention prophecy. And that prayer could be used in connection with the spiritual gift. That's about it. The challenges are, I think, kind of overwhelming against that view. All right, anything further on that? Let's go to the custom of the time. Uh, What would be supporting evidence to indicate that, and I'll just throw out a scenario, for example, um what are some things in our culture that indicate a it recognizes the leadership of her husband um, the
1: things in our culture that recognize in a marriage relationship the leadership of the husband?
3: Yeah, culturally I'm
1: not sure there are
3: many anymore <laughs> uh, usually a woman takes her husband's name. Oh there you go yeah, there you yeah. go although. Uh, go in Japan, a woman walked three steps behind her husband. Now, if you were a Christian in Japan, and you lived at a time when the woman walked three steps behind her husband, and you decide you're going to walk in front of your husband, how do you think Paul would have viewed that? That's not good. Yeah. And if today uh, a girl says, you know, I'm not going to take my husband's name. He can take mine. How would Paul have viewed that? So the custom argument says in their culture, a veil indicated a woman's place in society and that apparently some of the women are not doing that. And so what Paul is enforcing is, of course, the broader principle that man is the head over uh, the woman, uh, as Christ is the head over man and God is the head over Christ, but also that it should be expressed in keeping what with what their custom of time wants. So what arguments are presented in support of that?
1: Well, the word custom shows up in the context. Down in verse 16, it says,
2: we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. Yeah, some translations, but we have no practice. Um, also in verse two, it, says, it talks about maintaining the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. Um, I will also say that, again, this is a place where the English Standard Version, I don't agree with the English Standard Version here, but they have some footnotes in this section. Uh, One footnote says, In ancient times, married women often wore headscarves to show that they were married. Uh, It also goes on to say about the long hair later in the passage, In ancient times, female prostitutes often shaved their heads. In ancient times, male prostitutes often had long hair. So the ESV includes some footnotes. Uh, trying to promote the view that this was a cultural thing uh, in ancient times. There's
1: also, um, as we mentioned, verse 14, doth not even nature itself teach you? Some some would say that, that, I think some would maybe see in that a hint of a custom.
3: Yeah, uh, and, and I'll, I'll present that argument here. And that is, suppose we went to a land where the Bible had never been heard, of, okay? And uh, you know, there's some tribe of people, they, they don't know the Old Testament, they don't, they don't know the New Testament. We tell them about Christ, we baptize them into Christ, and then we say, by the way, why are you women praying without a veil on? Judge in yourselves, is it seemly to pray to God without a veil on? Them. Well, if they're not a culture that does that, there's nothing that's been said to them about this. What would their answer probably be to this question? Does that even seem decent? Well, yeah, they would say. <laughs> yeah. So there's something that Paul is appealing to there. And it doesn't mean, Oh, just decide for yourself. Because back in first Corinthians chapter 10 and talking to them about associating with idols, he says, just judging yourself. Should you be, you know, taking part in these things? He's not saying, ah, do what you think you ought to do. He's calling attention to their sense of shame. And so the fact that he could do that might, might support the idea was was custom of time. Um, if you've ever looked at an international, Bible style, international Standard Bible Encyclopedia, they give a quote from an ancient writer that says, it was an act of bravado or worse for a woman to appear in public unveiled. Now, if you look at Kittle, which is a more extensive, uh, multi-volume dictionary of, of Greek words, They say, if I remember correctly, uh, and if anybody else remembers this quote, uh, please jump in here, that that's really kind of misrepresentative, that that wasn't a quote about Corinth. Uh, It was, quote, maybe about some particular event or festival in Rome, if I remember correctly. I haven't looked at that in in some years. But it seems the general tenor of it is, that that quote has kind of been used out of context that we don't know that that was the case in court. So Here's the quote from Kittle. Um, this is the paragraph. It
1: says it used to be asserted by theologians that Paul was simply endorsing the unwritten law of Hellenic and Hellenistic feeling for what was proper. Uh, but this view is untenable. And then he comes down and he says, it is quite wrong that Greek women were under some kind of compulsion to wear a veil in public, and then he mentions the quote from Plutarch. Plutarch's quote has been taken out of context. Um, Pluto- Plutarch's quote um, is in a section on Roman questions. In fact, that's the title of it Roman Questions, and it's particularly a, a, a thing about Roman practices. It is interesting that uh, Corinth um, had been reestablished with a Roman population, right? If I'm thinking right. Uh, when it was rebuilt after it had been destroyed at some right. time. Yeah. There are several quotations, though, that get brought into this that are really about Roman customs, and they're also about practices that were eight or nine centuries prior to this period of time. Uh, so, so so you have to be careful with some of those kinds of quotations oh, that right. to establish customs.
3: <clears throat> so if, when you get to secular quotations, there seems to be – contradictory evidence and and, and not certain. So I'd say the strongest supporting evidence here might be where he appeals to his audience. And he says, does that even seem decent? If they, if he's talking about a cloth veil and if a cloth veil is something that was expected in their community as a custom, then that would be one way that his statement would make very clear sense. just, Think about it. Is that even decent? Uh, what might be some challenges to categorizing this as a custom of the time? Mm-hmm. By the way, speed up our place here. I'm sorry for going too slow. Well,
1: the, the context, you know, he starts out in the context. It's all rooted in the order of creation, the mm-hmm. divine order. If you look at chapter 11 in verse two, he says, I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man. The head of Christ is God. That's talking about, the divinely established order of authority. And then you get to uh, down in verse uh, 8 the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. For neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. That's a, an appeal to the order of creation back in Genesis chapter 2. It seems an odd way to go about beginning his argument by appealing to the divine order of things, the divine order of authority and the order of creation. If really, what all this boils down to is a custom uh, that he is trying to, to suggest they should follow, but it's not really something from God.
3: Let me play customs advocate on that for just a minute. Yep. and I'm not convinced of that position. But let's say we had some young women today who said, I am not going to take my husband's name. That's Mm -hmm. patriarchy, and I'm not going to do it. If Paul was here, I think he would talk to them about it, and he would start with, listen, you know, the man is the head of woman. This is the way it was created. Woman was created for man, et cetera, et cetera, and and, and that type of thing. Uh,
1: well, I'll just say, and, and I, what I would respond to that, I would say, you know, if Paul were addressing a young woman who had that attitude, there would certainly be a need to deal with that attitude, to confront that attitude. And yet, I don't think Paul would say, therefore, you must take your husband's name um, he, in a letter. You know, he writes to the Corinthians and repeatedly says, He's saying to them the same thing as he says in all all the churches. churches. Uh, At best, you could say it would be advisable, appropriate for a woman who is wanting to profess godliness in a culture where that's the norm and she wants people to see her as one being um, submissive to her husband. But you could hardly make it a law that a woman must take the the man's surname. And And yet here, Paul seems to be saying You must do this. A man must not be covered when he prays or prophesies, and a woman must. Unless,
3: and then there's people that argue verse 16 both ways. I've heard it argued. So it it was a custom there, but not elsewhere. I've heard people say, no, this thing is not a custom, and that's been argued both ways. All right, very quickly, because we really have to speed up there. Uh, Challenges two. Uh, One thing, it's just dangerous for us to get in a habit of getting to a text, And if we're not sure what it says or not comfortable with what it says, saying, well, that was this for back then. Uh, There are some cultural things that show up in the New Testament, like foot washing. Um, Foot washing was not an ordinance of the Christian church. It was something that people did before. Uh, the, the sinful woman comes in and washes Jesus's feet because she wants to humble herself and be of service. And he rebukes the Pharisee. You didn't give me any water to wash my feet. Uh, you see Abraham bringing water for the people who wash. I remember being in Haiti and in a place where you don't have plumbing and stuff. And each morning, at may would bring us in water. So we'd wash our feet. And I'll tell you what I appreciate. It. Uh, and so you see some things, but there's a real danger in without uh, in too quickly just relegating something to custom, uh, you can turn around and say, "Well, what about baptism?" And somebody could say, "Well, that was a custom of the time." What about the Lord's Supper? Well, that's custom of the time, et cetera. All right, so let's move next to order real quickly. Real quickly, if I can just stick this in here,
1: I was mentioning Paul's appeal to as I say in all the churches, or as I write in all the churches, in First Corinthians chapter four at the end of verse 17, even as I teach everywhere in every church, in First Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33, the end of the verse, as in all the churches of the saints. Then look at First Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 16, neither the churches of God. You know, whatever we say about no such custom, what that means, that language, neither the churches of God, puts his teaching here in that same category of things he's teaching in all the churches
3: all right number three an ordinance for veils and worship uh this view would be saying that he is talking about a cloth veil and it would be saying it's not just for women during the times of spiritual gifts and it's not just the custom of the time it's something that women should do when they pray or prophesy uh and so that's what it says and that's what women should do and uh, a number of uh, women uh I know who will wear a veil uh, either when they go to church or when they pray or both. And we can talk briefly about that distinction in there. Um, And uh, this view says the Corinthians were supposed to do it then. The Philippians should have done it then. And we should be doing that today. The man should not, for example, have on a hat when he prays, but the woman should have something on her head uh, when she does that. Uh, and then some people say it's for when you're in the assembly of worship. Other people say, no, it's when you're praying. And then Mennonites, for example, uh, it's for when you're in public. So somebody address that view. What would be some supporting evidences for that?
2: Well, I do think that this is the most straightforward reading of the text. If you were to just pick up 1 Corinthians 11 and start reading, it says like, well, it sounds like Paul's saying a woman needs to cover her head when she prays or prophesies. That's pretty straightforward uh, way to take the, the text, just looking at it at face value.
3: Especially if you're looking at a text where it's translated, let her cover her head. And you know, he shouldn't cover his head. Uh, then I think if you just read that text to a number of people and asked what that meant, I think this would often be, uh, for a number of people, it would be the first thing that might come to their mind. And there's value, in taking a text at, you know, yeah, yeah. The natural reading is usually the best reading. Not always. If you looked, if you just read the verse, what about people that are baptizing from the dead? You know, you might come to a conclusion there that, you know, it's th- a little bit hairier passage than you might think. But there's a great advantage to just take uh, it at face value. Right. Um, but again, that has to do, especially if you're reading one that talks about, you know, cover his head or she should not uncover her head and that type of thing. But another way to translate it is, uh, well, I don't have the American standard open, but the, the Greek there can be translated also in a sense that sounds more like the state of being covered, like uh, being, covered being uncovered. Uh, although that still could refer to where they are. Uh, exit. <laughs> any other supporting evidences? All right. Let's move to challenges. What What would be some things that might suggest that that might not be what's going on?
1: One thing I would say is it's not uh, certainly when we read this in our translations that's and it's easy to say that would be the face value meaning it's not quite strongly quite so strongly the face value meaning when you are reading it in greek because in greek all these places where it talks about a covering they're all verbs it doesn't mention a covering it just says be covered or uncovered or verbal adjectives until you get down to the end of the context and and you could still say Well, yes, but if you're covering the head, what are you going to cover it with? You're going to cover it with a hood or a garment or a hat or something like that. But when he finally does get around to mentioning a covering down in verse 15, he mentions long hair as given to a woman for a covering. So what you really have is a context where he mentions covering the head without ever mentioning what you're covering it with until he gets down to verse 15. And he talks about covering the head uh, with long hair. Now it's to, to be sure when he says her hair is given her for a covering, he uses a, a word, a noun that's unrelated to the verb he's been using. But the fact is he's never been, he's never used a noun for a covering prior to this point.
3: Yes. And so that blends into point of view number four. Uh, I think there is some, uh, the, the point Stephen made I think is quite significant. and if the person feels that that's what this passage is saying, I would certainly encourage them to do that. Uh, there's nothing wrong with it and if that's what the text is saying to do, then of course it's the right thing to do. Um, one psalms to it is that the for, for instance, the word veil as a noun is nowhere in this text. It refers nowhere specifically to any article of clothing, Directly, other than the verb "be covered" um, or "cover," until you get to that verse where it says that her hair is her covering, and then that word is a noun that does refer to something a person could wear. But in that verse, it says it's the hair. So one of two things is happening here: either he's talking about bales and correlating it to hair and long hair. Or the other possibility is he's talking about hair the whole way through. Uh, What would be some things that would be supporting evidence for that that the covering is
2: the woman's long hair? Well, verse 15 is the strongest argument for that. Yeah, read that. Uh, Last part of the verse says, for her hair is given to her for a covering.
3: Yeah, and um, another supporting evidence is that he's been discussing hair kind of all along. Back up in verse five, after saying, every woman who prays or prophesied, if she has her head uncovered, etc., it's as bad as being shaven. But if a woman is uh, not going to be covered, let her be shorn, uh, but if it's a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered, or some translations, veiled. Uh, so you've got, it's either talking about a cloth then switching to hair, you know, and and, uh, paralleling it to hair, then back to cloth, and again, paralleling it to hair, or perhaps he's talking about hair all the way through. Um, Anything, any other supporting evidence on it being hair?
0: Uh, I've never heard that uh, before, Jeff. Can you repeat what you said about that, about it's being used as a verb, not as a noun?
1: So there, and Scott said the same thing a moment ago in the way he said it was. You don't have a word for a veil throughout the text until you get to verse 15. You finally have a word for a garment. And, and I'll just run through this real quickly. I'm reading from the American Standard, and I'll do this very quickly because we're running short on time. Um, verse 3, but I would have you know that the man, head of every man is Christ and the head of every uh, – sorry, verse 4. Every man praying and prophesying having his head covered – Uh, verse 5, a woman unveiled in the American Standard. Those are verbs, and we have verbs and verbal adjectives through here. We don't have a word that says a man having, having a veil on his head or a woman having a hood on her head. We don't have a word for a noun telling us what she is to use to cover her head or what a man should not cover his head with. We don't have anything like that specified until we get to verse 15, and then you do have a noun for a covering, but then it says that her long hair is a covering.
3: We're Let me read this that time. The Greek word in all these other verses uh, is kata kalupto.
1: Or, or the verbal adjective form, uh, cognate of that word.
3: Okay, thank you. Calop and, and this is one of the challenging things. This word is not used anywhere else in the New Testament. Except this chapter. Now the base of the word is calupto is used, for example, when Jesus said nobody lights a lamp and covers it. That's calupto. The book of Revelation, which is an uncovering, a pa from a pa calypse, an uncovering. Uh, so the "kalupto" would mean cover. And then you'd have a negative of it to uncover. The Greek word here is katakalouto, which kata could intensify it and have the idea of like down or against, or maybe kind of like we might say covered up in, in uh, English. So since it's nowhere else in the New Testament, some years ago, I thought when I, when I run into a word that's only used in the New Testament, what I like to do is see how it's used in the Septuagint. Because even if you're limited to one use in the New Testament, there's usually at several uses in the Septuagint. And in this case, there's a bunch. If I remember correctly, there are 72 of them. In uh, at least 70 of them, it was not referring to like an article of clothing. There might have been one or two that were. It's been a long time since I looked at it. But it's used ranging from uh, the fat that covers the innards on a, on a sacrifice clouds that cover the earth, the veil that covered the holy of holies. And so it's using all sorts of instances. And it's saying that when a man's praying a prophesying, he should not be covered up. When a woman's praying a prophesying, she should be covered up. If she's not going to be covered up, then she might as well be shorn. But if it's the same to be shed or shorn, let her be covered up. Uh, real quickly, we're going to have to go over a couple minutes, so let's make it real quick here. Some challenges to the view that covering is long hair.
1: Well, I'll tell you, the, the thing that is, I view as the strongest challenge, and I, I hold this view, I, I, I'm inclined to believe it is long hair, but the thing that weighs the heaviest on me is the fact that very early on, uh, all the writings after the biblical writings themselves, you right. uh, see in the second century, there is the late second century, you see it just taken for granted that, that this is talking about an artificial go- uh, covering. Yeah. Right. Um, so, so that notion that there's a garment in view uh, became commonplace, at least in some parts of, of the world, fairly early on.
3: Yeah, and they lived in a time and culture closer to the time, and they, like when Tertullian writes about it, he's not discussing any of these, you know, th- things that we're talking, most of the things that we're talking about, he's assuming, everybody understands, this is talking about wearing a cloth veil, he's only discussing Should it be for all women or just for married women? Um, And so the fact that it was so readily understood to be taken to refer to a cloth veil back that early, I think, is a, a real challenge to this view. Now, of course, there were other things that were misunderstood early, but it is challenging. If Paul was meaning long hair and long hair alone, he certainly could have made it more clear. Uh, by saying it from the beginning and just instead of staying it at the end. Uh, Two other challenges real quick. It's often said, well, but you can't take your hair on and off. And if you're reading from a translation, says cover your head, don't cover your head. You can't do that with hair. But again, the Greek in some translations is not translated that way. It's more like in the state of. Uh, So, for example, if I'm trying to talk somebody out of getting a Spider tattoo on their face. I might say, just judging yourself. Do you want to be praying to God or prophesying with a spider tattoo on your face? My point is not, you know, you can take it on or put it off. Is that the position, you know, is that how you want to be when you're in communication with God? Uh, lastly, there's the argument that goes, well, it would, if the covering is hair, then it's redundant because if it says, if you're not going to have hair, then it's as bad as not having hair.
1: So the thing about that is Paul doesn't use the word for hair, the usual word for hair, when he says her hair is given her for a covering. He uses a a word that has to do with hair as an adornment and especially a woman's long hair. And uh, he says, that's what is the covering. And so then it makes sense to go back to verse five and say uh if she's not going to have long hair if being veiled means to have long hair being covered means long hair then she's not going to do that she might as well be shorn or shaven shorn is like it's the word for shearing a sheep uh shaven is like i am right now and like stephen drew scott and jonathan are not Uh,
3: so (laughs) i just (laughs) okay all right yeah So it is clear that in this text, there are different hair lengths mentioned. Shaven, bald. So let's think uh, Tully Savalas, Kojak, or uh, bald right now. Uh, I I think Yul Brynner, but he's long gone too. uh, (laughs) Uh, Okay, so we'll just say Yul Brynner. Yul Brynner, that's bald. Then a marine recruit. Shorn. And then not having long hair. I'm looking at Stephen here. Stephen doesn't have long hair. And then Stephen's wife, my daughter Brienne, she has long hair. Now, suppose Brienne got her hair cut like Stephen. Should have been uh, she would not have long hair. Yeah, no. and Stephen is saying, his head no. And if this is talking about hair all the way through, the point would besides the fact it's saying later, a man shouldn't have long hair and a woman is boring for her. To say, listen, if you're going to cut your hair off like a man, you might as well go ahead and get a buzz cut or shave it bald because it's shameful. But if it's a shame to be bald or shaven, then be covered up with hair. And to illustrate that all these links are talked about in Scripture, uh, notice Paul himself, who I don't believe had long hair. But what do you see in Acts 18? And his hair cut because he was keeping a vow, And he had it shorn. He had it shorn, so he went, you know, like, and so in the text, a man could have, say, Drew's length of hair, Stephen's length of hair, or he could have shorn, or he could be bald. Oh, that's fine. A woman not to do those things. Her hair is given to her for a So that's a possible explanation, but I think the challenge to it is it's not immediately obvious and early on, it seemed to be understood to not, and not only understood to be differently, but within 100 or 200 years or so, they don't even seem to be entertaining the idea that it was there. Uh, there were other things misunderstood. That's a challenge to this view. Uh, verse 15, I think, is uh, could be a real support to this view. All right, we're out of time. Does anybody want to say anything else before we close out?
0: I have a All question, right. Scott. I know someone else might too, but I have a question. To- I thought Jesus had long hair. Oh,
3: <laughs> no! I think we need to be more careful with like handout sheets that we use in kids' classes and stuff, because we're, we're we're giving kids the idea that Jesus had long hair. What is that in the Bible? It's not. Neither was he effeminate, European-looking. You know. Uh, we, we portray Jesus from a kind of Middle Ages idea of some Roman Catholic paintings. And that's, that's not where we should get our idea of Jesus from.
2: Our uh, questioner today had a specific question about verse 10. I just want to offer one thought on that. And uh, verse 10 it says, uh, That is why a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. That does seem to be pretty random. Uh, the best connection I know to make is in Jude verse six, where it says, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept an eternal change under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Uh, There may have been some knowledge among the Christians there of angels who did something to usurp authority. They left their realm of authority and whatever he's talking about, whether he's talking about cutting the hair short or whether he's talking about not wearing a veil Uh, The women are not to do that. Uh, The angels who did something to abandon their realm of authority were punished for it. Um, So that might be a connection to make to verse 10.
3: Thank you, Stephen. And let's finish with this thought. Uh, Our comments or evaluations of these different views are not authoritative. We are not the standard. Uh, And what you or I wish this verse was talking about or saying is not the standard uh, this is the text that the Apostle Paul wrote, and even though it might not be the most easily discerned passage, it's in the text, and we would encourage you to look at the text and follow your conscience guided by the text, not simply guided by what you said or wanted to say. Thank you very much, everyone.